Man, I'm so bummed I'm not at NAB. Sucks. All right. All right. Welcome to TGE, the podcast. Today's episode is going to be about Reservoir Dogs and some other things we like to talk about on this podcast. Mainly we talk about editing and we get into the details, the weeds of a iconic scene and see if there's something to be discovered and go from there. With me is Tyler. How are you? Good, Sven. How are you doing? Have you watched this Criterion channel? No, I haven't. Is it up yet? I think it's it's like coming out this month and they're doing one movie... Uh, you know, if you sign up early, you get to see like they're doing like a, a movie of the month or something like that. But so Filmstruck has been avenged. And speaking of avenged, we appreciate everyone who listens to the podcast. We appreciate you telling your friends. I don't know why that's vengeful. We appreciate the way that the word is spreading and it's growing. And go ahead and hit subscribe if you're new to it. I still want to hear from someone who has said Siri, subscribe to this podcast on their iPhone, but you can also do that on Spotify, you can do that on Stitcher, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can subscribe to us, and we appreciate it, so thank you. This podcast is recorded on a Monday, it's opening day for NAB, and what's really exciting is I got an email announcing that Resolve 16 came out, which usually doesn't get me really excited, because it's not my favorite editing software. But one of the features, and I don't know if you've heard about this, but they now, instead of, they have still the editing portion in Resolve, but they have a new mm-hmm. tab, and it's called Cut. And so they have a second editor that they implemented in there, and it's kind of wild. It's interesting. It looks a little like Final mm-hmm. Cut Ten, and then they have some of their own ideas. So it's not just one timeline you see. You see up to three different timelines of the same edit, and uh, huh. so you have like a macro and a global a global view and then like you can at the same time look at the details of a specific edit and then even dig deeper and do some crazy trimming so it looks really cool. really interesting could be a complete disaster or could be something completely new yeah one or the other i'm actually going back to linear oh really nice so yeah that's how they introduced it, actually. They're saying, yeah, we're, we're introducing some of the concepts from linear editing and bringing them back to make it easier. Now, we get excited every year about DaVinci, but then the sound is just never there, right? The, well, I... Like, does sound... Did they fix the sound problems you had? I don't know. I have to play with it, but they hadn't mm-hmm. in 15. It has to do with the multicam and the multi-channels uh, audio that you can't get back into. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm always yeah. very impressed with all the features that they introduce. And then when I actually start using Resolve, I always feel like it's it's clunky. It's like it, there's not the editor thinking behind it. It's not smooth. It's not mm-hmm. flowing ever. But maybe this is this is solving that problem. So I'm interested to see how that works out. Well, cool. Well, we look forward to hearing how it is in the next week or two. Yeah, baby. Want to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about Primer? I got an email from somebody. Yeah, we did Primer last week. We were It was very, you know, we needed a lot of feedback on it because it turned out neither of us had really watched the whole movie recently, but we did do the opening scene, but we both liked the movie. What's this email? This email comes from Mael, and 
He writes, Hey Sven, I enjoyed listening to your breakdown of the opening scene of Primer because it is also one of my most admired movies. Worth noting, however, especially from the point of view of editing, is that the film was actually shot on real celluloid film. You should check out the making of or the director's commentary that explains it all. And then I'd love to hear you guys discuss the film further with that knowledge because they had such a small <laughs> budget and film was so expensive. Shane meticulously planned every shot and essentially edited the film before shooting so that no film would be wasted. Only one take wow. for most shots. I think they only left a few minutes on the cutting room floor. Cheers. So wow, that is actually really... Um, yeah, I made a mistake there. I thought it was shot on video, but it wasn't. I think I mistook it for Full Frontal, uh, the Steven Soderbergh oh, film no. that was shot on video. And gotcha. Yeah, and I was surprised in, in the podcast. I feel like um, I remember being like, wow, that's the best anyone's ever made. <laughs> like the shittiest digital camera ever look. Yeah, no, it does look good. I do remember listening to the director's commentary and the one thing that I remember was that he was talking about the scene that he shot around a, a fountain and he, for some reason, they got the exposure wrong. So there's a lot of grain on that shot hmm. and that it always bothered him, but, uh, but probably just him. But it is, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, the film does look amazing and, mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, kudos to him. In terms of the editing, yeah, that's a tough one when you only have one take and you kind of need to need to do almost like paper cuts where you, like, map out the scene beforehand and what lines you're going to record in what angle. I've never gone mm -hmm. to that extreme. I had shot a movie myself on 35 millimeter, and I had only, like, two or three takes per angle. But um, I... I was I always shot the entire scene so I had coverage on everything. And yes, yeah, so right. my my ratio wasn't 1 to 1, it was like 3 to 1 or something something close. And yet to there's I wish I could have edited Primer because there's no editing job I like more than something that's so meticulous, although it it does rob you creatively completely. Yeah, it's I mean what? it's tricky because you either I mean you do two things, right? You rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And then you just mm -hmm. hope you get it right when you roll the camera. And you're running that risk of wearing out the actors. Or um, or if you don't rehearse enough, you want to keep it fresh, that you just don't get it because suddenly something you discover something in the filming and you feel like you need to do it again. So it's very risky to do it that way. But at the same time, it's a it's a constraint that probably makes you more creative your tools are really sharp because you need to get it done the pressure is on yeah well it's always that concept and kind of why people ask on the show why are you talking about all the stuff that's not just the editing and it's because everything goes into it and this is a great example of how understanding editing lets you make a, a much improved film with limited resources now with digital it's a little easier to get coverage if you're shooting something digitally but i'm all for shooting on film and all for it so it's always cool to see Robert Rodriguez's early films or this one where filmmakers really don't have the luxury and yet they it, all, it ups the ante a lot uh, to do it without coverage, although we never recommend it. And also, I really feel like, you know, I, I know that feeling of listening to some people on a podcast that are just saying facts that are completely wrong. And we really, really, really appreciate receiving the information that 
we were way, 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 way off. Like in, in a way that would infuriate me if I if I had that knowledge. So we need the community to let us know when we are out out on a limb talking sure. nonsense. Yeah, we're not really experts all the way. Like we're not completely geeking out on it. And that's maybe the most dangerous way of talking about these movies. Either you know nothing or you know everything. That's that's better than knowing a little, right? There's a there's a saying. Right. About that. I mean I stand by my analyses of the creative choices, but we don't always know the information. And sometimes people have inside knowledge about I mean this is pretty egregious, but sometimes people have inside knowledge that we don't you know, about what went on in the production that informs the decisions we're commenting on and that's always the coolest to get feedback about. Yeah, absolutely. In my experience. Absolutely. I do th- yeah, I think you're right. With everything. I think the takeaways that we drew <laughs> in that podcast are still... Like, every time we do a podcast and I look at these scenes and it's going to happen today again, it's already happened to me while I was preparing <laughs> for this. It's like, yes, I know something about this movie. I remember how, what it was like when I saw it the first time. But now I reflect on something very specific and I take something away that like is so precious in terms of mm-hmm. um, what I can now add to... To that film, right, and it's that that age old story you hear bandied about in film school of the guy, the professor, analyzing for Kurosawa why he made the choices he did to shoot this amazing low angle shot, and then Kurosawa saying, "No, actually, there was a billboard just to the left, so I had to, you know, just crop it out." <laughs> I don't know if that takes away from the meaning and the impact of our interpretation of the shot, but sometimes the mechanics of what went on behind the scene might be a little different, which is interesting too. And also, how do you embrace those problems and and build on it, which I think is a theme that we address here. Which is why there are a lot of filmmakers who never explain what their films mean. Oh, yeah. Or why they did things. They just let it be what it is. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and then there's Vince Gilligan's that really, yeah, pull back the curtains on so much and you get to appreciate it, I feel like, that much more. I mean, some stuff he won't, but a lot of times going into the tooth and nails of the production, it's always amazing to hear and it gives you more appreciation that there's no, no from episode to episode, no clue what's going to happen on, on Breaking Bad. It gives you more awe, I feel like. Yeah. Well, Mayal, thank you so much for sending out the email and getting it directly to me and uh, I hope uh, you're still going to be a fan of the podcast if not a fan a listener and uh, we can (laughs) still be friends if not a listener a downloader (laughs) we'll take anything (laughs) I was going to go through this list of because Ross also contacted me and asked me a while back in a podcast I don't know when I talked about this infamous AFI list of films that we were required to watch and I actually went through my closet and I found the list but I think I'm going to save it for next podcast go through those yes. movies and I want to see supposedly I've seen all of them I don't remember many of them but I want to see if Tyler remembers or knows these movies and can maybe give us a synopsis <laughs> nice yeah I know that list has evolved a little bit but I'm very curious to see how far I've gotten sounds good all right, so now we're ready um, to talk about Reservoir Dogs. I'm not a big Tarantino fanatic. I mean, I like watching Tarantino movies, but I never really get fully into it. How about you, Tyler? <laughs> uh, I have an interesting relationship with Tarantino. I mean, obviously, you know, especially with the early films, for me, that was a time, you know, we talk about people like Robert Rodriguez and stuff like that that show you the way. 
in terms of like, oh, people can make movies. Um, he was definitely the first time I realized people people made movies. Prior to that, I would always think it would be fun to go on the adventures Marty McFly was on, not recognizing, you know, that <laughs> it's being filmed, that there's, you know, multiple takes, that it's completely written, that it's staged. And it was really only with Tarantino's films just for that time in my life. And, you know, because he was such a celebrated filmmaker with a distinct voice that you start to see biographies and bookstores and stuff and pick it up and be like, oh, wait, a person makes a movie? So he was instrumental in me understanding that people made movies, which was very, very, very cool with no concept of a director or anything like that. And and kind of thinking like, I remember someone telling me once like, yeah, I heard he, like in high school, uh, I heard he directed Natural Born Killers and just thinking like, oh, that'd be cool to like to, to also direct a movie. Like it was very clear he was the writer and I was like, then what's the director do? Just kind of sit there on the set while it happens, like while this thing happens. You know, and obviously he didn't direct uh, Natural Born Killers, but it was kind of, that was my evolution with him. So it was right. very cool. Right. Um, yeah, I sort of, I didn't watch Reservoir Dogs before I watched Pulp Fiction. So that's when I noticed Tarantino was with Pulp Fiction and then I went back. Uh, it's definitely cool. It's a lot of things where I'm like, initially was like, okay, there's a lot of scenes that are about nothing. But this opening scene, now that I've rewatched it, I, th I think I had some thoughts why it is done the way it is and what the purpose is. It's going to be really mm -hmm. cool. Before we get into it, how about I set it up? Reservoir Dogs is a 1992 American heist film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It's his feature-length debut. It stars Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, Michael Madsen, Tarantino himself, and Edward Bunker. As diamond thieves whose planned heist of a jewelry store goes terribly wrong. The film depicts the events before and after the heist, which is, I think, really cool that you don't actually see the heist. Uh, it incorporates many motives, motifs that have become Tarantino's hallmarks, violent crime, pop culture references, profanity, and nonlinear storytelling. The film is regarded as a classic of independent film and a cult film and was named greatest independent film of all time by Empire. Although controversial for its depiction of violence and use of profanity, Reservoir Dogs was generally well received with the cast being praised by many critics. It grossed 2.8 million on a 1.2 million budget. It was more successful in the UK where it grossed 6.5 pounds, million pounds. And it was the talk of the town at the Sundance Film Festival. Yes, where it had a failed projection. <laughs> like oh, the projection went blurry or something like that and and Tarantino had like rightfully a complete mental meltdown um during the debut of his film just you know having a huge projection failure which is fun considering what a proponent of film projection he's been ever since yeah yeah I was picked up by Miramax at Sundance so yes and also fun facts about Reservoir Dogs it was Made as a straight-to-video movie. I believe it's Live Entertainment. That's a, a straight-to-video company that bought it for that reason, but it was just so incredibly well done that, that they sold it for the theatrical re release. Yeah, and I think he originally intended to shoot this on a very low budget, 30000 with just a couple of friends. And somehow the script got to Harvey Keitel, and he became a fan of it enough to push it further he helped with the casting put some money up for the casting in new york i believe 
and then they ended up raising 1.5 million to make the film. Yeah, and it'll be fun to see the reveal of Steve Buscemi's character in this, because I think character reveal is a big part of the scenes that we're looking at. I know endless facts about Tarantino in, in these films, and we'll hold off. Maybe we'll get into it a little more, do another one when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's coming out later this summer. Okay. But I will say that the actor Tarantino wrote the role of Mr. Pink for himself, and then when Buscemi auditioned, he realized, oh, shit, I have to give it to this guy. <laughs> and that was a role he wrote for himself, and then of course, you know, created the role of Mr. Brown that, that he played. So was Mr. Brown added after the fact, or was that another character already written and then he cast it I'm himself? reasonably sure he added it after, he, after Buscemi came in and auditioned. Got it. Sam Jackson auditioned as well, didn't get the role, which he always resented Tarantino for, although obviously he's been in every movie since. Yeah, and, uh, but f interestingly enough, he still sort of gets the first line in the movie, Tarantino. Oh, totally. That's the funniest part to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he, he's definitely putting his stamp down. And I think, you know, a lot of that helped build the legend. Yeah. So good for him. That's some balls on your first film, though, with Harvey Keitel and the likes. Yeah, there, yeah there's a lot of balls in this entire movie. <laughs> All right. So here we go. We're doing the opening scene. What we usually do is we watch it with you. If you have the option and you can sit down somewhere, watch it with us. We'll leave a link in the description of the podcast. And when we say one, two, three, click, you can just watch along. If you can't and you're on a run or you're commuting, don't worry. We'll describe it to you. We'll go back and we analyze it in more detail. Anything else before we go? I'll also point out that the reason we're doing this is because last week we were doing primer and Sven pointed out it yes. reminded him of this scene, which I'm sure is, you know, an homage to another film given... Tarantino's propensity to do so, which doesn't jump to mind, but uh, it's cool to look at in terms of the way characters introduced, and it's going to be cut in a very different way than Primer, so we're kind of comparing the two. We are, and um, I've formed an opinion now whether it is an homage or not, but I won't reveal it right now. We'll have to wait. Okay. Okay, here we go. In three, two, one, click. Uh, we start on some nice little yellow credits. What's nice about them is you can see that they're shaking, which is an indication that it's film. It's an optical. We hear Tarantino talk before we come up. There's a slow creeping dolly shot behind the backs of some suited guys. And they're talking about the origin story of Madonna's Like a Virgin. That's what you're losing about. Yeah. No, granted, no argument about Still that. Still don't quite see Tarantino talking. It's like over his shoulder. I don't even follow that touch of the pop shit. And you've never heard a true move. Yeah, so he was saying heard of it. You know, what I asked is, how's it go? Excuse me for not being the world's biggest Madonna fan. Personally, I can do without her. I used to like her early stuff. Didn't want her as we would start this scene with. So now we're also intercutting between closer dolly shots on the faces. And the, the camera keeps moving and keeps panning. It's interesting to notice when we are on camera and off camera for some of these lines. What the fuck was I talking about? So True Blue was about a guy, uh, sends a girl that meets a nice guy, but like a virgin with a metaphor for big things. Okay, let me tell you what like a virgin is and I like the naturalism of these coup. people just blocking the scene out with their shoulders. It's almost as if you're listening into this 
just a bunch of idiots. They're not discussing plot or anything, but you're really, in a way, learning a lot about character. Yeah. And the most disposable guys doing all the talking, but you're just learning about it from the way they're they're talking. Yeah. It's what I really kind of like engaging is fly on the wall conversation, but then it takes the turn at the end where we realize, oh, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. They're his, about to commit a robbery. His story that he's talking about, it ends on him on camera when he says, like a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. Which I thought was really interesting that most of the story was not on him, but on everybody else. But the button was on him. Okay, right. so then, then we it's move almost on. like a transition to go to that, yeah. that thing being snatched, the book being snatched away. Yeah, so at 2.22 now, we're done with the dolling shots, and now we pick up the sort of that B story of this conversation, which is that address book. Toby Wong, Toby Chung, fucking Charlie Chan. That the older guy who's potentially like the boss of this year, And Toby the Jet. I don't know what, coming out of my right. And that puts a nice conflict in this scene to carry throughout this kind of more natural natural interaction. We have this now, we have this conflict thread of, is he giving him back the book? Well, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to keep it. Hey, Joe. Right. Want me to shoot this guy? Shit. And it's kind of escalating. We're slowly realizing we have a little bit of these violent edges and stuff like that. 301, we're going back to Dolly Shots. So when there was a little conflict, it stopped moving. Oh, yeah, man, it's fucking great, isn't it? So now we're like talking about some other music. Heartbeat, it's a love beat by Little right. Franklin and Franklin family. Man, I haven't heard that song. At this point, like this is like the third story where I'm like, what? Why are we talking about this? I, I heard that song since it was big. When it was big, I must have heard it a million times. I mean, what's really going on is we're getting to really know everybody. Like who is, what is the character of each one of them? Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of people. I just heard it. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, stop moving. The bill. <laughs> Boom up to him, and he's going to pay. And this is the introduction to the tipping part. Should be about a buck apiece. The new conflict. And you, when I come back, I want my book. Sorry, it's my book now. Hey, I changed my mind. Interesting enough, Chris Penn here, he is the only one that wears blue. Or like a different color. All right, everybody cough up some green. Mm-hmm. And now we're like in these close-ups, locked-off shots. Well, there's a slight, slight adjustment with the, uh, with the head moves. You know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money. She can But quit. this is really where I remember where I'm like, I'm actually really listening. Everything else, I'm kind of, it's just washing over me. But here, this is the stuff that I remember. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But I mean, it's tipping automatically. Yeah, and it also, like, it picks a topic that's very relevant to, at least here in America, right? This whole tipping thing. It's an ongoing discussion. What's special? <laughs> Is it? I think so. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is a broad, this is a bold stance to, to not tip. fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want to fill six Even as a European, you have a take on this, right? Which is like, I don't know. This is wrong. You shouldn't have to tip so that they can make a living. The system is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, right, but he's not coming from the from a European point of view. <laughs> no, he's not. 
supplies to work minimum. I don't even think Europe's mentioned it. I wasn't lucky enough to have a job. The society deems interesting. He has a like over the shoulder two shot of Harvey, as opposed to all these singles that we had so far. Single over the shoulder. It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. I was thinking about that the other day at Trader Joe's. They're so much more deserving of tips than any waiter I've ever had. Tip them, do you? Why not? They're serving you food, but no. Society says. All don't right. Um, I don't know. Do you want to keep going or? Bullshit. Um, we have. I think enough. we're good. Yeah. So let's stop here. So Sven. So um, it did remind me a lot. Um, like I feel like Primer starts off the same way. Like you have that dolly shot, then you creep around. We have another dolly shot, and then it stops. And mm -hmm. I, it did kind of. I feel like it's an homage, even though then it it goes off on something else which is like the high angle shot that we discovered and the, the shot through the the open doors that kind of stuff but the whole opening was very much re reminiscent of this scene and well there's also collared shirts and ties and kind of having fairly nonsensical conversations yes. while we're kind of learning other stuff sub subconsciously and, and winding cameras the director holding court yeah, yeah, for sure. And I remember actually a couple of years ago, Tarantino was at AFI for opening day. And there's a clip online on YouTube that I saw where he's talking to the students. And he was talking about the fact that people sort of said that he was stealing a lot of stuff in Reservoir Dogs, potentially some other movies. And he's like, yes, mm -hmm. I'm admittedly, I do that all the time. But it's not like what I'm doing is I'm I'm taking something here, I'm taking something there, and I'm I'm using it for my story. It's a completely fucking different movie, is what he said, right? But yes, that scene I took from that movie, and maybe this is what uh, Shane was doing as well. He just took a little bit, and that's how he got <laughs> into his film, and then he moved on, and then it became its own. Yeah, it's a very different movie. They're not criminals. <laughs> But also, you know, things with, there's so many, you know, like supposedly City on Fire is very similar to Reservoir Dogs, stuff like that. Yeah. But like the idea of naming the characters' colors is taken so directly from the taking of Felum. It's taken from the taking of Felum, one, yeah. two, three, that it's like, wow. Um, but so much more iconic in this one, which is kind of funny too. And you can see that in a lot of the you know plays of Shakespeare and stuff. Like a lot of people are writing about the same the same subjects. And obviously, like the kings and queens and the histories and Merchant of Venice and stuff like that. But, you know, just being crystallized in obviously a more memorable, iconic way. So there's kind of like this weird balance with that. But then also, I mean, I think at this point in Tarantino's career, we can say that he's he's contributing something. Oh, yeah. It's a remix. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I would say it's even, I mean, it's obviously far, far, far more than that. But yeah. it's kind of funny how little details people can get hung up on i think it's a little egregious in his case and rightfully so but you know it's like the facebook social network thing i mean you know if you invented facebook then you would have invented facebook right <laughs> right like it wasn't the first platform which i always thought was a great line yep in terms of the purpose of the scene what why it's i mean this is a gutsy scene to start off a movie and in the wrong hands, could be uh, could be a disaster because you basically have a bunch of people sitting at a table talking about stuff that's like 
not related to anything what the movie is about and mm -hmm. it still works what do you think is the purpose of this scene Well, it's interesting to me because if you think like seeing it again, seeing it very early and, you know, discovering cinnamon stuff, it's 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 very notably stylized. Like you can feel from the very first shot, you can feel the director's hand because we have an unmotivated camera movement. Yeah. So you're aware that someone is doing this and yet it's very cool and, you know, it's also a little bit of a break from what you're used to in the mainstream because there's a conversation being had about absolutely nothing. And that was such, you know, sort of a signature Tarantino thing at the time, how we're just really almost like a, like a objective documentary, kind of just getting a real sense of who these people are because they're not following the tropes of, you know, what's the conflict? Every line has meaning. Every, every moment is revealing story. It's really just like, Hey, look, here you are. You're in this world now. And you're getting to, you're getting to observe a conversation that people in this world, Tarantino's world have. And I think it really stood out because of that, but it's also interesting to see how, you know, he's not just randomly writing babble. It, uh, the camera work shows that I'd never even thought about or noticed before until we started doing this, that during those things that are really just characters talking, you're learning character through just their, their interaction. It does have that kind of uh, dollying camera work going on. And then when it becomes boom, conflict story, we have things locked off. Kaitel's coming in hot and heavy. It's really, it's really interesting and how there's also multiple scenes. Obviously it's a nine minute bit, but there's like multiple scenes within it that are broken up, right? He finishes telling the Madonna story. It ends with this little like <laughs> Bob Fosse, like bow almost from him. I know he's not bowing, but it kind of feels like that to me. And then we have an, I feel like an insert or, you know, the, the address book being snatched away, we're mo which works as a transition. We're moving into a new scene. It's just incredibly well executed. You know, for something that just kind of has the illusion of being meandering. Yeah. yeah. It's not at all. Yeah, I think the, the big challenge here is, and it's bigger than for most films, is that you have eight characters to introduce. And you got to give a flavor for each one of them. Like, who's the guy that is intimidated? Who's the guy that just talks a lot? Who's the guy that is smart? Who's the guy that's like a little mischievous? All that stuff. Um, and that's accomplished in this scene. Usually you have maybe four or five characters, if it's an ensemble. Eight, that's a lot. And a lot of these characters will never kind of really have that opportunity again. So you need to really uh, make your mark with them, with each one of them. And I think that's why that scene is the way it is. Why, like he, maybe he did this instinctively, but I think the, the, the calculation behind it is okay i need these anecdotes so that everybody can play their character and see how they react to this situation some people are going to be into it some people are going to not be into it um distracted uh, opposed to it all that kind of stuff and this way you can reveal each character and then you can start your story Right. And additionally, it's found a way to not just be giving us information, but it's actually incredibly effectively drawing us in Like yep. from that first moment with that shot. It's it's I want to know more. I want to know who's talking. I want to know who these people are. So it's, it has a good job of doing that lean, lean forward that Norm Holland would always talk about. 
Can you define that? Lean forward? What does he mean? No, I don't fucking know. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the thing that makes you sit forward in your seat. Like, oh, what's, I want to know more. And hopefully every edit, I mean, ideally every edit is doing that, just bringing you in more and more and more. And that has to be contributed on every level of the storytelling. And the last thing that I'll say about this scene is that everybody always wants to have those moments of just real life. And I know this isn't real life because they're, you know, it's a very heightened version of, of who people are, but just people chilling out and conversing is where there's not some drive behind it is just so rare and hard to pull off. And yet it's done so well in this movie. And it's funny because like, and we all know anytime that's been tried, the reason as editors, we know as writers, we know directors, you know, because you're always cutting like you're polishing that diamond and just pushing it and pressing it down more and more and more and those are the easiest 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 things to get rid of so you know the fact that they are so they're they're like the antithesis of what you want to be doing in a story they still somehow stand out as the most memorable dialogue and most memorable moments even though they have nothing about what you're supposed to be doing according to the rules of drama and it also never becomes boring it's incredibly engaging to me but it's funny that you watch it the editing machine that Sven is watches it and the machine's active like we could lose this we could lose this we could lose this because you know how wrong having those moments are and yet it's ironic that they become so memorable and so iconic because it's just done so well and it's it's weaved in and it's important to remember that those stakes are introduced and kind of stakes are planted that allow you to to enjoy those things that are that that stray from from the stakes in the story more because they're presented yeah i actually have and to that's s- my bow yeah i <laughs> i probably would have said this is a very indulgent scene but after watching it now i think it's less indulgent than i would have thought despite the fact mm-hmm. that I barely remembered anything from it other than the tipping thing, uh, which hmm. is like, that's something that's going to stay with me forever. But if I had to cut anything, I think it starts off perfectly with the Madonna story. I think it's fine to have the sort of B story be about that address book. But then somewhere they like go- veer off and talk about music one more time. And I don't understand <laughs> that part. Where like for another thirty seconds they talk about something else, and I I pulled up right. the script and I read it and it's just like they just throw so many different artists and stuff there that I'm not familiar with mm-hmm. before they then settle in on the uh, on the tipping thing and the camera literally settles in. So maybe it's it's intentionally maybe this is strategic um, to just overwhelm us, confuse us, and then. Uh, lets us be more focused on it, but I felt like maybe that middle part could have been could have been cut. <laughs> sure, but the thing I would I would add is maybe if Robert Altman directed it, we wouldn't even hear that dialogue. And I think there's a couple other factors too. One, the the tipping thing has nothing to do with the story right. itself, right? So it's kind of like a nothing scene also, but you're learning that this guy's resilient, like whatever. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll add is I might be jaded too, because I didn't have these cultural references when I saw the film. Yeah. And I think now that I'm remembering those bits you're talking about were the bits that were in the soundtrack that would play 
before before the music started, and I had that CD and listened to it forever. So yeah. I could quote those things word for word, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they jumped out in the film. But that said, like you're saying, maybe they don't need to. That's not that's not what they're there for. Yeah. And what's also interesting is at the end of the tipping scene, Steve Buscemi is taking the stand, right? I'm not tipping. It's wrong. And then at the end, the boss says, come on, you got a tip. I paid for your breakfast. You better tip. He's like, all right, I'll do it. So it's it's kind hmm. of like a non-event. The only, right. <laughs> nothing changed. He's still tipping, but it's completely introducing his character. Yeah, and then we're going to learn who has the weight at the table and so forth and so on as it goes, which is all very interesting. And then there's another standoff at the end, uh, which we won't reveal here. The last thing I'll say, because I have to edit this, um, is (laughs) for that that film at the beginning, I mean, the the title sequence, a cool thing about that is that an insider tip you can get from the commentary is that it is... It had that cool kind of slow-mo look, but what they actually did was they filmed it fast. They filmed it at like 14 frames a second and then played it back at 24 to get that cool kinetic look. Oh, I see. That it has. Oh, that's good to know because when I saw it, and I didn't remember the strobing effect, I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. so he never planned this to be slow-mo. He just shot it at regular speed and then slowed it down. And Mm -hmm. you're saying, no, this is intentionally shot at an even slower rate. Yeah, faster rate. Faster rate. Yeah, 14 frames. So more frames a second. Well, 14 frames is less, have backwards. Yeah, less frames a second. Yeah, yeah. Y- usually you um, shoot less this frames. at 120 or whatever um, yeah. so that it's smooth. Right, but not these guys. No, this and is not smooth at all. We're also going to go to editor hell if we don't mention Sally Menke, his yes. collaborator on... All of his films, I think, up to Django Unchained, who unfortunately passed away in this tragic accident. Incredibly talented, and and uh, I mean, I, I, easily a huge part of a lot of the style and success of his films. And we're discussing this stuff really extensively here. It's not, you know, again, I don't think he was shooting the way Shane Carruth was. I think he allowed discovery in the editing room and that was just such a great collaboration and you could tell he's someone who's like no 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 more 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 in the edit he would say i think in that 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 final cut documentary is it called final cut whatever it's called someone yeah. will tell us um it it was all about how you know she would generally push him to make it tighter and tighter and tighter and he's like no 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 and then they kind of had that thing where they would find that that balance in in the middle so that's a that's a huge loss um and she will be missed. Yeah, letting it breathe is what he was always pushing for. And she was like cutting it down. Right. And that's so fun to watch with you and see that. Because again, you know, you're such an editor. You you just automatically know, like, we don't need this. But yeah. then with that debate with him, be like, okay, maybe we do. So you yeah, kind of had the same interaction times. they had. It's different times. I mean, that scene is eight minutes long. And <laughs> I don't think we would have missed that 30 to 60 seconds in the middle. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> hear that quentin you have your new editor the man who will push back on you different times maybe back then was fine nowadays i don't know (laughs) back then all right well if you enjoyed what you're hearing if you have anything you'd like to contribute there's a lot again there's a lot more detail and nuance we could go into about this film but we are we are sparing you we'll probably be talking about tarantino more as once a time in hollywood approaches this summer so you can look forward to that it's cool comparison between this and primer we appreciate the feedback if you like what you're hearing 
please subscribe to the podcast. Let your friends know about the podcast. You know some Tarantino heads. Have them listen to the podcast. Go to the New Beverly Theater if you're new. If you're in L.A., film projection. It's been remodeled. I can't quite tell what the difference is. If anyone could tell me, that'd be great. And, uh, you know, as Sven always, uh, thank you to Curtis for the music. And as Sven always says. Before I say it, I also just want uh, to say thanks again, Mael, for reaching out to me directly. So if you're a listener and you have something to say about this, don't hesitate to uh, get in touch with us. And happy editing. Yeah, sorry, I, I knew you had something to say. I just was kind of... Uh, I was gonna. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what my plan was, but it worked right. out. Cool. Um, are we all good? I think we're all good. I mean, this is. I like it. I think we're good. Yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't say we nailed it, but I think we did good. I'm turning off.